0: We are in week four of a series that we're calling Scandalous, and uh, you, you have to say it that way, and, uh, and we're, uh, it's been good. It's been good so far. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand, and one of the guys will bring you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, this is yours. It's a gift. Um, if you do own a Bible, um, then uh, give it back, okay, because it's ours. Um, We are four weeks into this series. It's been a good series. What we're trying to do with this series is give a little bit of balance to how the, the culture at large um, portrays Jesus. So generally speaking, you see Jesus portrayed as kind of a hippie, grace, love, acceptance, love others, kissing babies kind of thing. And that's fantastic. That was a big part of who he was. But there was also um, another side to it. And Jesus said some very direct, very truthful, very hard things. And so we wanted to talk about a few of those. So we, we had five things that we picked out um, that were those those kinds of messages. So, tonight we'll be in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Um, this passage, and, and the Scandalous series has been kind of two different kinds of messages, the way I look at it. One is, um, moments when Jesus was talking very specifically to non-Christians and, and laying it down and going, this is who I am, this is what that means, and this is how you should respond. Um, and then passages like this one that are specifically directed towards his disciples. And, and it's a call to arms, so to speak, to his disciples to go, listen, if you're really my disciple, this is what that looks like. This is how you should respond. This is how you should act. If you're going, yeah, I'm, I'm with Jesus. So Here's what I know. I know that a lot of you here are not Christians, and and I'm happy about that, and you're a guest, and you're totally welcome, and we're we're happy that you're here. Um, There's a couple of things I'd like you to do. First of all, don't assume that the people around you are all Christians, and you're the only one in here who's not a Christian. Because it's just not the case, right? It's 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 common for us to walk in and go, oh, "I'm the only one here." I'm, uh, you know, you just make assumptions about the people around you. Don't assume the person you're sitting next to is a Christian, okay? Uh, unless they've they've said, "Hey, I'm a Christian," and then it's like 50 okay? So, uh, <laughs> don't assume that. S- second thing is, I-, I want you to to listen to this message and hear Jesus' words through the lens of um, this is what. Jesus expects from his followers. So a lot of people that struggle with Christianity struggle more with Jesus's disciples than they do with Jesus, right? Whatever vague understanding of Jesus that we have, we go, "Uh, yeah, Jesus is great, but his disciples are just hypocrites and I don't like them and they're mean and all that. And, And to an extent, Jesus agrees with you, okay? And so what he's doing in this moment is going, listen, hypocrites, some of you, This is what it means to to be my follower. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to to look around you and go, hey, this is Jesus speaking directly to his followers going, some of you don't get it. Some of you aren't following me like you're supposed to follow me, and, and this is what you need to do, okay? One last thing before we get into it. I love passages like this. I absolutely love passages where Jesus speaks very directly, very simply, and, and doesn't sugarcoat what it means to be his follower. Um, there is a whole movement in kind of the pastor world, and I don't know how many of you are, are in the pastor world, I hope very few, um, and, and it is, there is a, a whole kind of movement, a group of people, a group of pastors who want to kind of soft pedal um, the, the gospel and go, oh no, Christianity is just like ways to. of Make your marriage better. Christianity is just um, ways to make you more happy, or ways to get you more money, or whatever. And so, um, many kind of unnamed Joel Osteen pastors um, will will do that sort of thing. And and so, it's it's a method of uh, I I don't know being popular or or trying to grow your church, whatever. Um, Jesus never got the memo on that philosophy, okay? Because what he says in passages like this one totally undercut that whole idea. So. Mark chapter 8 starting verse 31 it says he Jesus began to teach them that the son of man and that, that's an old testament title that Jesus is applying to himself. So when he says that everyone goes, "Oh okay, yeah, son of man from, from Daniel." Okay? So and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after 3 days rise again. Now, this is the first time that the disciples have heard the plan, right? This is the first time. In, in the following chapters, Jesus is going to say this a second time and a third time, but this is the first moment that the disciples kind of hear Jesus going, hey, here's what we're going to do, okay? And this, this plan is not at all the plan that they thought was the plan, okay? When, when they have all these ideas in their head about who Jesus is, they're thinking, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to win some battle, or Jesus is, you know, the people are just going to rise up and elect Jesus, and Jesus is going to um, usurp Rome and free Israel, and he's going to be the king. And kind of by extension, the disciples are going, well, if Jesus is the king, I could be maybe secretary of state or vice king or something. And, and you know, so they got some aspirations there, and they're looking at how this is going to play out, and it's, it's all victory. It's all good. It all ends with them in in luxury and success and victory over Rome and freedom and all all of that, all of hundreds or thousands of years of of nationalistic Jewish history building to this moment. They see Jesus as the Messiah, and so they go, this is going to end really good. So when Jesus calls them to himself and goes, guys, here's the plan. Here's how this is going to go down. We are going to go to Jerusalem, but when we get there, everyone's going to hate us the people with power are really going to hate us and they're going to persecute us and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes um, are going to hand us over to Rome and I'm going to die. Okay, and then I'm going to raise on the, on, the, uh, on the third day. But by that time, they're not, they have no idea what he's talking about. They go, wait, wait, wait. Um, persecution and death? That is not at all the plan. That, that, is, that, is, that is a sharp left turn from, from where we thought this thing was going. So th- this is gonna come out of nowhere for the disciples and they react accordingly. Verse 32, he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I know that um, some of you here have been Christians a long time, some of you are new Christians, just a general rule, it's bad to rebuke Jesus. Just, it just doesn't end well, okay, and, and we'll see that. So Peter here's here's the story, here's the plan, and goes, one second, Jesus, what, <laughs> are, are you crazy? You, you're gonna go to Jerusalem to die? No, 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 I rebuke thee, okay? And he says, that, that is not at all what's gonna go down. This doesn't make any sense. No, we're supposed to go to Jerusalem and win a great battle and get power and influence, and, and this is how, you're supposed to free Israel, Jesus. And he literally takes Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, no, Jesus, your plan is wrong. I've got a plan. This ain't it. So that's crazy. But what makes it even more crazy is that one moment before this, the narrative immediately before this, the little paragraph right before verse 27, says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So Jesus has been doing ministry, doing miracles, preaching, doing all kinds of stuff, and, and there's some buzz. And Jesus simply asked his disciples, what's the buzz? What are, what are people saying about me? What are, who do they say that I am? His disciples say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? So I get all the buzz, but what do you guys think, Disciples? And who's the first to respond? Peter. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, this word has has all kinds of Old Testament baggage, and I mean that in the best possible way. That when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, it's not just some word that he made up in this moment. He's going, you're the one, Jesus. You're the one that the Jews have been waiting for, for generations, that the prophets have been speaking of. You're the Messiah, the Son of God, the, the Lord, the Christ. The, you are it. You're the Son of Man. You're the one that everybody's been talking about and hoping for and praying for. It's all led up to you. You're the one. You're Neo. It's all you, Jesus. So this is, this is a big moment. And Peter says, you're the Christ. And then the one whom he just said, you're the Christ, says, we're going that way. And Peter goes, I rebuke you. With one breath, exalts him as God. And with the next breath, rebukes him because his plan is not Peter's plan. So this is all kinds of crazy. But what makes it worse for us is that there's not a person in this room who hasn't done this. There's there's not a person in this room who hasn't done what Peter did in this moment, who hasn't thought to themselves, my life's going to go this way, and I'm going to marry this person, and I'm going to get this job, I'm going to go to this school, I'm going to live in this place, I'm going to have these things, and this is generally how my life is going to go, I'm going to have 2.5 2.5 kids, and they're going to be blonde, and they're going to be smart, and one's going to be athletic, and, you know, kind of a rascal, and, and you know, we're going to, this, this is my life. And then at some point, your life went, and you go, no, 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 Jesus, that is not at all how this was supposed to go down. I, I was supposed to marry her. She wasn't supposed to be crazy. lot of knowing laughs there. (laughs) There she is. (laughs) Every one of us has this moment. Where, where our life we thought was headed in this direction, all of a sudden God takes us this way. I was supposed to marry this person. I was supposed to get into this school. I was supposed to get this job. I was supposed to keep this job. Jesus, I was never supposed to live in Arizona this long, right? Like, that we've all had kind of those moments where we go, uh, uh, my life's going this way. I always thought it was going to go this way. What's happening? And we get angry, and it's those moments where, well, all of a sudden you're, you're angry at God and you're frustrated with the process and you sit down with the pastor and go, why is my life going this way? I was never supposed to, to, to experience this tragedy. My, my, my parents were never supposed to die this early. I was not supposed to get sick. Why is God doing this? And then some of you are here going, I, I've never done that because I would never talk to Jesus. That's, that sounds crazy. You're right. There are many of you in here who would never go, Jesus, my life was supposed to go this way. What, What you do is say, God, you're not supposed to be like that. God, you're not supposed to be a God that has wrath and judgment for sin. God, you're not supposed to be a God that allows that kind of hurt and pain and tragedy in my life. God, you're supposed to protect me from those things. And if you really were God, you would have. And so the Christians say, Jesus, it's not so, my life's not supposed to look like that. You're not supposed to do that. And so many non-Christians go, God, you're not supposed to be like that. And in the same way that Peter re- rebukes Jesus because Jesus' plan was different than Peter's plan, we do the same thing over and over and over. See, It it should be a reminder to us that oftentimes God's priorities are not our priorities. That that God's hopes and dreams for our life are not our hopes and dreams for our life. In fact, he speaks to this specifically. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. Never, never get in a rebuking fight with Jesus. You will lose he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) That's bad. (laughs) For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and goes, no, that's not the plan, Jesus. It's not you die and everyone hates us. It's you're victorious and and people put us on on their shoulders. That's the plan. And Jesus goes, listen, Satan, you're not thinking like me, you're thinking like Satan right now. You're thinking about your future and what you want and what you hope for and what you long for and your safety and your security and your luxury and all the things that you hope and dream about this world, but you're not thinking about me. See, Satan is the one that entices us to seek our own fulfillment. Satan's the one that says to us, do what you want, be happy, get what you need, do your thing. It's all about you. And in that moment, Peter was going, no Jesus, Christ, Son of God, Lord on high, God of God, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, King of kings. No, what you say is not right. It's what I want." And Jesus goes, listen, you're just, you're just thinking like Satan and you're talking like Satan, so I'm just going to call you Satan. You're not thinking about things that are eternal or things that are ultimate or things that are really important. You're thinking about now, thinking about yourself, thinking about power, thinking about influence, luxury, safety, and security. There, there's a moment that we all have to have to have in, in our as our life develops, as our Christian life develops, where we have to realize that God's greatest aim is not our happiness. That perhaps God cares more deeply about our holiness than he does about our happiness. And so these are those moments where where Jesus goes, believe me, I I, I don't want to go to the cross either. Do you think that's a path that I'm longing for? To go and be hated and be persecuted and be whipped and tortured and killed? It would be one thing if if Jesus had said, listen, we are going to go to Jerusalem and I am going to be king and it's going to be awesome. But here's the deal. You guys are going to get no credit. You're going to basically end up being slaves and servants. I'm going to be hooked up, but I'll probably forget you in the process. Then maybe the disciples would have a right to be angry. But Jesus said, I'm going to go and be whipped and beaten and mocked and killed. And yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be raised on the third day, but there's going to be some steps in between now and then. Jesus turns to the rest of his disciples to teach them. says, verse 34, he called to him the crowd with his disciples, said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? Jesus lays out a a difficult challenge for his disciples. One that is certainly a day in, day out giving up of our desires and giving up of what we would want and what we would pursue and, and just at least offering it, offering it to Jesus to take from us if need be. And so this is a, a daily taking up our cross, a daily submitting our hopes and dreams to Jesus, but, but that daily life was also marked by these, these extreme events. Jesus, every day, woke up and was obedient to the Father and, and gave up his life and served the people, but then he only went to the cross once. There are moments when God calls us to take up our cross in a very serious way, outside the norm of just the daily pursuing of God. And it's those moments where where Jesus is going, listen, are, are you calling me the Christ? Do you trust in me as Lord and Savior? Then this is the direction we need to go. This has happened to me twice in my life. The first time was about seven years ago. I was at a church in San Diego. That was an awesome church, and I'd been there from day one. And at the first day, this church had 2,500 people, and it grew to about 7,000 in the three years that I was there. And I was the college pastor. About a year after I'd been hired, um, they had me preach on a Sunday. I started preaching all the time. Anytime our pastor was gone, I would fill in and preach. Thousands of people. I'm a 23-year-old with, with more influence and power and responsibility than any 23-year-old should ever have, and it was awesome. I, I loved it, and, and and I don't know if I mentioned it, it was in San Diego, which is which is better than here. And so, um, I remember about two and a half years into my my time there at that church, I started to feel the itch, started to feel called, started to feel something brewing um, to go plant a church, and so I began to. Th- pray about it, and think about it, and process it with the pastors there, and, and, uh, I had, I, and I've told this story a thousand times, that um, when we first decided to plant, we had a list of five cities, and Tempe was fifth on the list of five, and San Francisco was number one, and Portland was two, and Seattle was three, and San Diego was four, and Tempe was actually more like tenth on a list of five, but I, I just didn't want to come here. It didn't, it was home. I had gone to high school here. It felt like I was coming back home. I didn't want to do that, but God made it really clear this is what we needed to do. And walking away from that job with that opportunity, that, that kind of platform um, was all kinds of foolish. I remember one of the pastors took me aside one day and goes, Hey man, here's the deal. I know you're thinking about this, and if God's called you to do it, you gotta do it. I get that. But just think about this for a minute. You've got a great job in a great, great church with incredible opportunity, all kinds of upside, and it's in San Diego. And and you're about to move to to the desert. And I'm pretty sure there's a city there, but it's a desert, man. Just think about that. And I'm like, wow, that's super helpful. Thank you. And, uh, but we did it. And we left a great situation there to come here where we didn't hardly know anybody we started i've told you this 100 times we started with 10 people in my parents living room and a dream and very little experience or knowledge about what to do and the first two years were unbelievably painful we went from 10 to 75 people in two years i was working full-time i got married in the middle of that which was dumb not the marriage but the timing of it and uh and we got to the end of that two years, and, and it felt like we weren't going anywhere, and then something happened, and God decided now is the time. And so for the last five, we've gone from 75 people to about 1,600 people, and then we merged, and we're like 4,500 now. It's crazy. I don't know if you heard about any about that, but um, it, it's, it's been unbelievable. I mean, that, that moment, that decision to just go, wow, if I stay here, my ark is really good. This is a great church with great opportunities, and and I'm getting to do stuff that most 23-year-olds in ministry don't get to do. And then it was a left turn to go do something really hard, and we did it. And God blessed it, and it's been amazing. So I can look back on that moment and go, God clearly was guiding. God clearly was was shaping that and leading us, and, and, and God's promises proved true. We look back and go, all kinds of blessings. And the second time this has happened to me really has its roots about 10 years ago. When one of the pastors that I worked with, one of my best friends um, in San Diego, uh, took me up to San Francisco for the jazz festival. And it's my first time really in the city as an adult. And we were hanging out and walking around. We were on Haight Street, which was the center of the 1960s hippie movement. And standing in front of this old Catholic church, I remember it really vividly, looking at this church all boarded up, since become condos. I remember looking at this Catholic church going, man, there's gotta be a church here that loves the city and, and talks about Jesus and loves Jesus and it just needs it. And over the course of the last 10 years since that moment, it's always been kind of, I mean, remember San Francisco was number one on that list and I thought, it's, I'm too young and too single and too stupid and it's just not the right time and, 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 and yet it's always kind of nagged at me and nagged at me and, and throughout the years I've brought it up to the elders at Praxis and said, guys, this is kind of in me and what do you think? And it just it was never the right timing. And then about six months ago, um, we were doing a a team-building exercise with with our leadership team, and one of the things we were talking about was what our ideal job description is. And I said, I'm doing my ideal job description. I love my job. I love my church. I love my leaders. I love my pastors. I love my role. I love preaching. It's fantastic. Then I wrote as a little addendum, the only other thing I could ever see myself doing is planting a church in San Francisco. And for the first time in 10 years, the guys around me, when they heard me say that, went, all right, so are you supposed to do that? And, and I went home that day, and I told my wife, and I said, Em, the leadership team said we could pray about this. And so we did for a long time, for about six months, prayed and fasted and sought counsel and went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth thousands of times in my head. In fact, we went back and forth three times with the leadership team where I told them, we got to do this. And then I said, no, I can't leave and then came back to him a third time and said, we got to do this. And so next year, about six months from now, my wife and I um, are gonna move to San Francisco and plant Redemption San Francisco. This has been the most excruciating, painful, difficult decision of my entire life, far more difficult than the first time around because we have something really strong to lose here, the relationships and the friendships. the incredible church and ministry that we have here, to go start over from scratch in a city that is hostile to the gospel. Um, San Francisco is almost the exact same geographic size as Tempe, only in Tempe there's 150,000 people, and in San Francisco there's 850,000 people. And the, the few Good churches that are there are vastly outnumbered. In fact, in the plant area that we're looking at, there are literally zero evangelical churches. this is a big area. Redemption has been unbelievably supportive in this process. The leadership team has has blown me away. Their spiritual support, emotional support, and and financial support. I asked them to support us here, and they came back and said, no, we want to do here. It, It has been an unbelievable process. One of the things that, that made this whole thing possible um, was the fact that God brought Ricardo here nine months ago. Kind of almost accidentally, there was, uh, we were gonna do one thing and he brought him here and we changed our minds and he stayed and he's been a phenomenal leader. The staff has rallied around him, he's an incredible preacher and I remember one of the first times he preached, my wife and I were sitting in the back corner and I turned to her and I said, this guy could lead this place. For the first time, I looked at our eldership and our our leaders and the the foundation that we have here and said I could walk away and it would still be strong. In fact, it, it would create a moment. It would create a moment for all our people, all our leaders, all the people who call this home. It would create a moment for us to go, are you here because of the people and the relationships and the mission and the values and what we're doing in the city? Because if you're about that and you're about Jesus, those are the things that aren't going to change. Jesus has, is and has always been the senior pastor of this church. We've said that a thousand times. And that doesn't change. And the desire to love and serve the city doesn't change. Someone asked us after the 10 o'clock, someone asked Ricardo if, if we were going to shut, shut down the church because I'm leaving. He was super encouraged by that. (laughs) I thought, listen, if this church shut down because I left, there is something fundamentally wrong with this church, and I have nothing to be proud of for our seven years here. What makes redemption strong is our love for the people and love for the city and our mission and the gospel being at the heart of it. That's what makes redemption strong. And so as, as difficult and, and as much as I have dreaded moments like this one for the last six months, and it really was this moment, these moments, the conversations I've had that, that caused me to go back and forth because all the time I knew we were called there, this unbelievable opportunity. I, I feel a burden for that city, and the only thing that made me waver was walking away from you all. It's going to be incredibly hard. And I have all kinds of mixed emotions about it. But I've never been more confident about anything in my life that God's called us to do this. So I want to have Ricardo come on up. And I want to just ask you, as, as he's coming up, I want to ask you to do something for me. Well, I need you to pray. And I know that that can be cliche at times or sound trite. It's what missionaries always ask you to do before they ask you for money. And um, I, I, I need you to pray for my family. Um, for myself, for my wife, Emily, for my daughter, Lily, and my son, Cole. Um, Emily is scared and excited. Uh, my kids have no idea what's going on, um, but they will, and they're going to grow up in the city. And And so pray for them. Pray for San Francisco. Um, it's a beautiful city, an incredible city, but it's a city with um, really serious spiritual strongholds. The only way that that there is successful church there is if the gospel plants deeply in the hearts of people, if the Holy Spirit breaks down some of those walls. So please, please pray for us and pray for redemption. This is an all-in moment for redemption. This is an all-in moment for Tempe and it's all-in moment for Arcadia to go, why are we here? What are we actually doing? Why do I come here every week? Why am I in a community? And I pray and I hope that the answer is the gospel and the people and the mission.